Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Hi there, and welcome back to City Talks by Ford, conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today, and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, sustainability advisor, speaker, and author of Net Positive. Today, we're discussing access and equity in mobility. Joining us to discuss the path forward is Dylan Jones, architect, strategic planner, and principal and director of the Mobility Lab at Gensler. Together, we'll discuss his concept for the 20-minute city and the third lane, and how to design with communities in mind and the impact that access has on equity and vice versa. Welcome, Dylan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thrilled to be here this morning. So you work for Gensler, which I'm not sure everybody knows. It's one of those big firms behind the scenes making buildings happen. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how this uh, mobility lab that you're a part of got started? Absolutely. And, and thanks so much. So Gensler is the world's largest design firm. We have about over 5,000 people in over 50 offices around the world. Founded in 1969, so we're a little over 50 years old. And we're a design firm. We're not an engineering firm. We're a design firm. And we're you know laser focused on improving the human condition, leveraging the power of design. So we practice across a broad range of practice areas. And everywhere we practice, we think first about you know the human condition and the human experience. What is the experience of live, working, and playing in today and tomorrow's world? And right now we're focused on cities. We're focused on the future of cities. And we're focused on some of the topics that we're all looking at right now, climate change, you know, carbon reduction, you know, the built environment has such a big, big role to play there. And, and also social issues such as equity and access and, and mobility in the mobility lab, to answer your question there, was set up to look at disruptions in the mobility space ever since, you know, really probably 2008 when Mr. Jobs brought us the iPhone. You know, we've really disrupted the way in which we think about mobility and the choices we have. And there's a series of technological disruptions that have been following that, not necessarily related to that, that have added to those disruptions. And when we think about mobility, you can't take away the idea of mobility from cities and design because the way we move shapes space around us. So as designers and architects, planners, we have to understand mobility so that we understand how space is being shaped, how cities are being shaped, and how new modes, new disruptions are reshaping kind of the way in which we access each other and experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think the, you know, my work is focused a lot on systems, right? Systems approaches and how everything's connected. And it mm-hmm. sounds like that's a lot of what you're focused on. Is it is it more normal now for if you're hired to build a big new building or a new headquarters to be thinking about all these different connections and not just the building itself, but what it does to the neighborhood mobility? Is that part of what you're kind of hired to do these days? Yeah. And, you know, it's a great question because, yes, we have to be thinking about everything all the time. As architects, we're trained to think horizontally, if you will. We have to think about many different systems coming together within the building and the built environment. But if you want to practice successfully today, you have to think about 
how all of those technical and tectonic systems play in a kind of much more broad and complex world. So the decisions we make as we're shaping buildings relate to the space between the buildings, relate to the, the, the experiences that people have, the behaviors that people can, you know, the way in which those decisions can shape behaviors and then in turn shape, you know, some of the things that we're seeing in our communities and all around the globe, really. So it's interesting you ask that. I think a lot of architects are trained to think about buildings specifically, but we're also trained to think at a systems level. And we have to do that more and more. And at Gensler, we're doing that across a broad range of thought leadership topics. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a skill we all need. I think business, we're not taught systems thinking very well growing up. And yeah. I fear, you know, often people describe our big sustainability problems as fundamentally design problems, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the big challenges the lab is aimed at? What are you trying to solve? Another great question. I mean, the lab, it's a lab. So where we, what we do there is we collect people from across our practice areas and we look at issues related to mobility and how our clients are being disrupted, how our clients are having to respond. And we're testing new ideas. We're, te- we're, we're talking to people, developing new technologies, new modes. We're thinking about new ways of thinking about access and equity. We're working with public sector agencies to think about traditional transit systems and how they fit in a contemporary world where people have a choice to jump on a subway or get a share a scooter. We're working with new mobility providers to help think about how to integrate that infrastructure into cities, how to connect to new users. We're thinking about traditional clients who traditionally might have had to build parking garages and what happens in a future when all cars are electric and you know parking garages aren't about storing gas cans. They're about bringing in consumer electronic equipment and thinking about new uses for outmoded kind of infrastructure. We're thinking about the future gas stations, you know, what happens in a world where nobody needs gas stations in the future. And we've got, you know, three or 4 billion square feet of real estate in this United States, you know, at every corner and every community across the country, you know, stranded, like now, what is it? So we're using the lab as a kind of a testing ground. And, you know, ultimately we're we're running a design business. So we want to bring those ideas back out to market, back out to our clients, back out to our communities to make a difference. And as designers, we're able to shape visions that we can communicate to kind of the broad range of the public and really share what tomorrow might look like, what it might feel like, how it might be experienced. And in that way, I think we have a big impact on shaping the future city. That's great. I mean, we, and we're going to talk about that future. I want to talk about some of the challenges today. So Mm -hmm. we've talked a lot in this series about access to mobility and the difference, the inequality issues that comes up. How do you think about mobility access? What does that mean to you? Yeah, and and it's a good question. I mean, backing up, you know, when we think about mobility, it's almost synonymous with an idea of freedom. That's right. I I remember as a child growing up and, you know, we used to hear a lot about kind of the Iron Curtain and what it was like to live in a different place where you weren't allowed to leave the country. And it's like this kind of infringement on mobility that I think we all kind of equate to an idea of freedom. So we often say use mobility differently. We talk about social mobility or, you know, workplace mobility or or capital mobility. And really we talk about this idea of movement and the kind of freedom to move around. So when we think about access or access to jobs or opportunities or, you know, the ability to connect with each other or certain kind of lifestyles, things like that, it's really about freedom. So when you drill into this idea of, you know, getting from point A to point B, 
and having access to point B, whatever that experience is that we want, education, work, play, it's really about that. And that's why we want to bring kind of choice into systems. And we want to think about barriers in systems. We want to think about friction in systems. And how can we kind of bring more choice to more people and reduce those barriers and, and that friction, all the while being mindful of how the operations of such systems impact other unsimilar systems, for example, things like climate or health. So yeah, it's, it, you know, there's cross systems at play too that we're thinking about when we think about just access specifically. So what do you, and the term I've seen thrown around is, you know, mobility desert. And I've heard, you know, food deserts where there's communities that they can't get to mm-hmm. a supermarket easily. How do you define a mobility desert and, and where do we see that happening? You know, mobility deserts, I mean, quite simply, is a place where you don't have choice or you don't have access to modes. So, for example, in a typical transit system, you know, half of riders might be what we call transit dependent, or that is, they don't have access to another mode. Most transit riders aren't saying, well, I'm going to leave my car in the driveway today, I'm going to take the train. A lot of transit riders are saying, well, I'm taking the bus today because that's my only option to get to my job, which is 15 miles away too far to walk, too far to bike. And if you take away that bus stop in the neighborhood, you know, or that link, now you're talking about a transit desert. So you're starting to, getting back to your idea of access, you're starting to infringe on people's access to experiences, you know, to those jobs, to those educational experiences, most importantly to, you know, to the people they want to connect with, you know, their granddaughters or grandsons, things like this. So I think mobility deserts are a function of both infrastructure and systems, you know, like operational systems. And it's something that we can, we can affect through design. Yeah. I mean, when you have one option for something, it can sound very efficient, right? And without multiple ways of getting somewhere or doing something, you don't have much resilience, right? I think we, we've learned that in the last couple of years on supply chains and, and lots of things that we build for efficiency. And there's one way you get something from A to B. Mm-hmm. And then if that goes down or something's wrong with it, you know, people are stranded. So how do you, how do you think about kind of creating redundancy and really kind of diversity of options in these transportation networks? And does that fit with, you know, low cost municipal budgets and companies that want to build low cost? Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of manage that? Well, so another like complex question that we can unpack, and there's a few ways to go about this. The first, I'm going to take a step back and talk about how we, as designers, kind of unpack mobility so that we can understand it. So we've broken mobility or modes of mobility as each having three separate components. There's always a vehicle, there's always a path, and there's always an experience. So vehicle path experience equals mode. So you can look at anything. So for example, you know, typical automobile mobility. There's always a car, there's always a roadway, and there's always an experience. Maybe you're driving along in a convertible or or conversely, maybe you're trying to run across the street and not get hit by the car. So those are experiences or breathe the fumes of, of the car. These are experiences. And what's interesting when you look at any mode, the modes, like the paths that are very successful in our cities are in a sense, somewhat low tech and shared and public. And the vehicles are always evolving and kind of technologically current, et cetera. The challenges we're seeing right now is we've got roadways that were essentially designed 100 plus years ago that now are accommodating very fast two-ton automobiles and a lot of them. And there's not a lot of room left for somebody who's you know, just walking or somebody who's riding a simple bike or riding a scooter. I mean, people, you know, a lot of people who started looking at the flood of scooters on city streets, 
start complaining. You know, they're, they're all over. They're everywhere. Well, people aren't saying, well, look at these cars. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. The challenge isn't the scooter or the vehicle. I mean, they fundamentally are good for us. They provide hundreds of millions of trips. Half of those trips are displacing automobile trips. They're very efficient. They're just using a little bit of energy, not, you know, the energy needed to move a two-ton vehicle. The problem is we don't have the right paths for them. So we don't have what we call the third lane, which is a place where, you know, something moving faster than a pedestrian, but slower than an automobile can easily ride without fear of getting run over or danger of hitting, you know, something like a pedestrian. It's this kind of, you know, this, this kind of mid range of speed that might accommodate many, many modes. I've seen you write about the third lane. I I have to comment. It's funny as we've talked to a number of people, whenever we're talking about alternative modes and definitely people who want to see this mix. We always refer to cars as these two-ton behemoths. You know, it was a two-ton car kind of reminding mm-hmm. us that it's this giant thing for getting a single person or mm-hmm. two people around, right? The ratio of weight to what you're right. moving is actually kind of absurd, right? Versus walking, which is zero-ton vehicle, right? Absurd and dangerous. I mean, I think the statistics show that if you get hit by an automobile moving less than 25 miles per hour, you have a 90% chance of surviving. If you get hit by an automobile moving more than 25 miles per hour, you have a 90% chance of dying. I mean, right. they've gotten very fast. I mean, in our lifetime, you know, cars can accelerate very quickly. Electric cars can accelerate extremely quickly and they're very heavy. And so they're, they're inherently dangerous. And I, yeah. I don't think I'm, I'm not advocating that we should, you know, get rid of cars. I think that, you know, ideally cars are powered by more sustainable means, but we do need to redesign our streets to make them much safer for a much broader range of mobility solutions. You mentioned the third lane. So one is cars and one is pedestrians, and then there's a third in between. Is that what third means? What are the first two? We always need paths for pedestrians. We need safe, pleasant, you know, intuitive paths for pedestrians. And pedestrians move between three and five miles per hour. But, you know, a bicyclist moves faster than that. And a bicyclist traditionally has gotten away with just kind of a bike lane, a little bit of paint on the roadway. And it's dangerous. A lot of people choose not, you know, I don't want my children in a bike lane on a roadway that's just protected by a line of paint. I don't want my grandmother in there. You go to some countries like the Netherlands and you'll see the children and the grandmothers in those lanes because they are separated. They're more protected, you know, but those that speed, it's more like a 10 to 15 miles per hour. And it happens to be the speed at which most micromobility modes, i.e. like electric scooters, electric bikes, et cetera, roll at. It's the speed a bicyclist might you know, roll at. It's the speed a, a jogger might run at. Mm. So it's a different speed kind of orientation than a typical sidewalk. And it's a lot slower than automobiles. And so I think, you know, you can't always get a third lane everywhere but there's a lot of places through design where we can slow traffic down so that we can better mix modes. And then there's a lot of places, any new road being built in America today really should have either a third lane or be designed to be you know, safe for all modes. If we do that, what we do is we create paths for a much broader range of solutions. And you know, another thing we're looking at is we've got this kind of new mode arising in our, in our world, and it's been fast forwarded through the last couple of years. And that's what we call virtual mobility. So anytime you can displace a trip, whether it's a car trip or a train trip or a walking trip, you know, instead of going from point A to point B to consume the experience at point B, you import that experience to point A, you use virtual mobility to solve your trip. And 
you know, what we're doing now, we're not sitting in a room somewhere. We're both in our respective point A's and we're still meeting. And this is, has a huge impact because now we've, you know, we haven't burned gases, et cetera, but we're also living more local lives. You know, so instead of, you know, when people say work from home or shop from home or learn from home, what we're doing is we're living closer to our local communities. And we talk a lot at Gensler and, and other planners and designers do too about the idea of a 20 minute city, you know, and how do we, how do we kind of consume more of our live work play experiences more local to where we live? And if you're going to live that way, then getting back to this idea of the third lane and micro mobility and slow remotes, you don't necessarily need a car that can drive at, you know, 80 miles an hour to, which is really designed to make much longer trips. You can start to use smaller, more efficient modes that are more cost-effective and more accessible to a broader range of people in a more local setting. And that's why we're seeing yeah. a huge boom in, you know, electric bikes and things like that. So, I mean, we're talking about people who have a lot of different technologies and options available to them, but, you know, we were touching on earlier people with fewer options and mm -hmm. some of the other conversations we've had, some of these communities, lower income communities, they also have fewer phones. They have less of all of this form of mobility. So mm -hmm. let's come back to the kind of equity idea and what do you do about this? What are the mobility options that keep equity in mind and, and eliminate these gaps in access? How do we handle this? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there, what we need to do is we need to bring more choice. And a lot of um, a lot of the kind of micro mobility modes, bicycles, and you know, and e-scooters and e-bikes e and things like that are actually a lot more accessible to a broader range of populations. And that's been proven out in a lot of the data that the providers and operators have collected. I think we have to rethink the systems, though. So getting back to this idea of technology and again, virtual mobility and how is that you know, it's great if you have phones and computers and, you know, Wi-Fi and bandwidth and you can shop online and do all these things and learn online on YouTube, etc. One thing we're looking at at Gensler is we're, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at the future of gas stations as kind of mobility hubs for communities. And when we think about those hubs, we're not just thinking about a place where you can, you know, kind of drop off a bike and pick up a scooter or, you know, get on a bus or something. We're thinking about the experiences that happen in that place. So it might be a place where, you know, a local community has a community rideshare program for bicycles. They go to the hub and there might be space there to, to plug in. It's got, you know, some 5G network. It's very, very connected virtually too. So the youth of the community might come there and be able to get online and do some online courses or connect to new job opportunities, et cetera. So I think it's really important to think about mobility as it relates to experience, not just the act of moving, but it's like, what is the purpose of it? Like, why do we want to move around? It's like, we, we want to move around to connect to experiences. How do we create systems that enable that for a broader range of people? And, you know, the, the gas stations are a great opportunity. I mean, we're going electric. It's, when we saw the Ford F-150 on a commercial at the Super Bowl, we knew we passed a tipping point. You know, it's going mainstream. It's it's coming. All the the manufacturers are going that way. The economics looking like it's going to go that way. It's we have to go that way for our air quality, etc. So if that's the case, then we need to start looking at some of these systems of like infrastructure that we used to have that we won't have and repurpose it or kind of a broader range and, and solve some of these equity issues, or at least at least work on them. I mean, can we solve them all? I think there's always going to be things to solve, but I think we can work on them and make a real, real difference. 
Yeah, I mean, you're not kidding about the EV thing. The, the, the Ford F-150 is kind of that moment of, wow, okay, we're bringing this into, it's the most popular uh, best-selling vehicle in the U.S., I think, for 40 years, mm-hmm. one of the best-selling in the world. And it's clearly kind of represented big, tough, you know, aggressive vehicles. And now they're right. saying EV is just as powerful. And if you have an EV, you know, it's actually got more torque. It's faster, right, than, than an engine. Yeah. It's kind of a remarkable improvement. Well, and, and, and what's really interesting for us as designers, and this is this cannot be underspoken, is it fundamentally changes the relationship of automobiles to our, our space and our lived environment. I mean, we know where cars live. They live outdoors. They live in our garages. We can't bring them inside. But EVs are like our refrigerators. And they're, you know, they're clean. They're, they're, consu- they're part of an ecosystem of consumer electronics. And so we... Right. We can think about them as our data and energy wallets that live much closer to us where we actually kind of reside and work. We might collect energy off our roofs and store them in our our batteries in our car. We might drive and plug into the building and sell back our excess energy and power our buildings. And and it also gives us an ability to, um, you know, and I, I don't mean to go too far off topic here, but also gives us the ability to be more active in the consumption of energy. Right now, when I fill up my tank with gas, I don't know where the gas came from. You know, I know it came from the ground somewhere, but Canada, you know, Venezuela, I just don't know. It's just gasoline. But in the future with electricity and with the kind of understanding of where electricity comes from, we will wear our consumer choices, you know, like as part of identity branding. So it's like I'm driving my EV or I'm riding my e-bike and I'm using like wind energy. Like I will wear that as part of my performance branding. We've been working with some you know, automotive companies that care a lot about performance as part of their identity. Yeah. We're talking about that. What does it mean to have a performance vehicle in the future? You know, it might be the kind of energy you're using and how you're plugging into systems might be more important to people than a kind of off the line zero to 60 kind of metric. But it's really fascinating how impactful a move to kind of electricity in our mobility systems is going to have on our cities. Well, it's interesting you say that. I hadn't thought about that. It can bring it closer to your home. Like if I start my EV in the garage, I don't worry about the carbon monoxide detector going off or like, it, it's just not no. a thought, right? It is, it's, you can tear down that wall between I mean, the garage true. and your it's living not a, room. It's not an industrial product yeah. anymore. It's like, it is more like moving around in your iPhone, right? Right. It's fascinating. So it's part of a cleaner lifestyle, as you said, right? I mean, the air is cleaner, the around mm-hmm. immediately around your house and then in the whole city. And well, that kind of brings us to a good kind of near closing topic, which is we've been talking about inequality, which is, I think, one of the grand challenges. And then the biggest one we face really is climate change. So I'm, I'm curious, you mm-hmm. know, with your experience in, you know, building city design, mobility, how do you feel climate change is affecting those issues? How are you seeing cities deal with that? Well, when we say, I mean, first of all, we have to define what we mean when we say city. You know, oftentimes when people say city, I think they, and they talk about, is a city doing well? They think about city governments, but really cities are an agglomeration of not just governments, but businesses and institutions and organizations and communities and individuals. And, you know, I think that we have to find a way to get more choice in the hands of individuals and more intelligence in the hands of individuals so that they can make informed decisions. I don't think we're doing enough if we're leaving big change to, you know, centralized kind of decision-making authorities like just mayors. I mean, it's great that mayors or politicians or or leaders are, are, you know, helping champion certain issues, but we really need to find a way to get, have people have 
the ability to make choices that make a difference. There's all too often individuals, you know, just to live their lives, they know that filling up their gas can with their car with gasoline is probably not good for the air they breathe and, you know, the climate and things like that, but they don't feel like they have or empowered to have a choice. You know, oftentimes, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy something, you come home with all this plastic packaging and you, you know that it's probably not good for the oceans to have all this plastic being produced, you know, and it, but you don't really have a choice. So I think what we have to do as designers is work hard on finding ways where we can design infrastructure and systems that give people the ability to opt out of, you know, consumption choices or behaviors that they inherently know probably aren't moving in the right direction and let them kind of move more towards kind of more local lives, more like cleaner lives, more less dependency on carbon producing type systems, you know, less dependencies on petrochemical produced plastics that might not be good for the food chain. You know, so I think that I think it's really about when we talk about cities or cities doing enough, I think people have a great capacity to do quite a lot and make huge changes, but we just need to help people put them in a place where they can make those choices effectively. Yeah, that's great. So let's that's a perfect place to kind of come to a close and ask you our, our final question. If we're looking at our window 20 years from now from an apartment or wherever, however, living in, in these broad ideas of cities, what should we see? What do we expect to see? What do you hope to see? Well, I hope to see, you know, more kind of diversity and vibrancy out the window, you know, more vegetation, but not necessarily fewer people, you know, maybe more, more diversity in the kinds of experiences that we can go out and engage with. I think that's really important. I think it, we should be living in clean environments, you know, clean air to breathe, healthy places. You know, we should see places where our children want to go outside and play and explore and we don't feel anxious about it, about the safety of that. You know, so I think we're probably going to be living in fully electric kind of environments and hopefully, you know, we'll get to the place where that electricity is produced sustainably as well and that we've got good strategies for how to how to source and re reuse a lot of the materials that go into, you know, the energy and the the batteries and things like that. So I think we're going to see a lot of kind of resilient materials that are probably more locally sourced. I think we're going to see more, more of a local life and wherever we sit, we might be looking at something very different from one place to another. Maybe what we're seeing isn't always the same. Maybe it's very, there's a lot of differentiation depending on what local you're in. That's a great vision. Thanks so much for that. Well, thank you, Dylan, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I'm I'm thrilled to be here, and you know, thank you, and thanks for you know Ford for supporting this, and you know, it's it's been a great conversation, an important one for people to engage in. So, looking forward to uh, many more. A big thanks to Dylan for coming on the show today and showing how new ways of designing mobility and cities can create a more accessible and equitable experience for our communities. Thank you for listening. Be sure to rate and leave a review so we can bring City Talks to even more listeners. I'm Andrew Winston, and this has been City Talks by Ford. 